Uh, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you all. Uh, as we are uh, in the summertime now, we're going to be looking at Psalm 18. Um, as our habit, then, you know, every summer, then we are going to go sequentially through the Psalms from one all the way into the end. And even if you should think our work is done, we will start back at one after that. Uh, but this is because each of the Psalms have their own personality um, and their own, there are a lot of common themes, but their own uniqueness. Um, and so this will allow us to get the full scope of God's word of what he would have us look at. Um, just one bit of background. Uh, this Psalm is almost verbatim from um, 2 Samuel 22, of uh, when David uh, won a victory over the Philistines, um, and he sang out this psalm in kind of spontaneous exuberance and then recrafted it for uh, public worship, uh, which is what we're going to read today. And it's a bit long. We got a four-pager here, uh, but it is one whole unit, so I'm not going to give attention to every verse, but we're going to read the whole thing. So uh, just... Uh, Bear with me. Uh, This is Psalm 18, and this is God's Word. It's to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness under his, was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the angels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. 
For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise, and they fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the peoples. You made me the head of the nations. People who I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, may the uh, words that I have prepared um, be of honor to you today. Will you redeem them from all weakness or wickedness in me? And would we all together be confronted freshly with your grace uh, today, that you might draw us close and send us back out in your confidence. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of the things that immediately stands out about this psalm when we first read it is it is just packed full of drama. Um, it is very expressive. Uh, this is a poem. Uh, he, David wrote this as a poem, and he uses all of the faculties of poetry. He's pulling on imagery because he is wanting us to get a vivid and a fresh sense of what um, happened to him. But not only that, he, in the fact that this is given to us in worship, that this is, this is a gift to God's people throughout all time, from that point and forevermore, that we would read this psalm and that we would again and again and again uh, be confronted with the freshness of God's grace, of his great deliverance of how he has behaved towards his covenant people and what his character is like towards each of us in and every day. Um, and I think what, one of the things where I think that confronts us is that um, as wonderful as God's grace is, as wonderful as the stories in the Bible are about what God has done for us, I think if we were truly honest, we would admit that eventually they can kind of tend to grow stale. Like we know them there, we know they're there, we know what happened, and we know the good news that they proclaim, but given uh, the hardships that come in life, uh, the long suffering, the endurance and perseverance that life requires, is that 
often it can grow stale and lose that sense of freshness that it once had. Um, and you know, I was mentioning this to Lauren earlier, and she reminded me, this is kind of like what it is like when we go to the beach, right? Uh, summertime, and we're all going to the beach. And when you first show up at the beach, I mean, it is wonderful. It is like, you know, the bigness of the ocean, uh, the waves, everything is new, the crabs and all that. And it's like all of the cares of life just go away. And that's day one. By day seven, you've been through a lot. Uh, the sand has just accumulated over time. Uh, the arguments that have had to be weathered uh, have accumulated over time. The sunburn has accumulated over time. And it just doesn't hold the same magic on day seven as it did on day one. It, over time, it fades. Uh, the frustration um, and all of the endurance that goes with it, it tends to chip away at that fresh feeling. And we kind of left at this place that, like, I don't think this thing is doing for me the same as it had done for me back uh, before. Uh, we feel this all the time. Uh, mayors can feel this way. Parenting can feel this way. Having parents can feel this way. Relationships can feel this way. Jobs can feel this way. That what this thing did for me in the beginning is not doing for me the same thing as it had done before. And that's where the psalm confronts us, and that's why the psalm is a gift. Because this is a vivid expression, again, for us to use and to come back. And in a way, to encourage us and to help us remember in a way that we can feel and we can taste the present reality, the freshness of God's redemption and grace that he has for us here and every day. And we get to use that and come back to it over and over and over again. To do that, I'm going to divide this. I have two points, but it's going to break down into seven subpoints. Okay? So they're going to be quick. Uh, don't worry about that. But we're going to look at, first of all, what God does for us. We're going to unpack some of this imagery of that this, outside of what we are supposed to do, this is what God is doing. This is what he has done before, and this is what he is doing for us today. And then we're going to ask questions, because this is a psalm This is meant to form us. It's meant to both remind us and form us in a new direction. And we're going to look at just a few practical things, and that's where the, the subpoints kind of get out of whack. Um, but they're going to be practical and simple things, I think, that this uh, psalm is going to encourage us to do as we go out of here. So first, we're going to look at this and just ask this question um, about why we should persevere with God's comfort, why we should come back to him again, always, and return to this grace that he has given us um, as if it was as fresh um, as it was on day one. And I've got three things. We're just going to look at, I think it shows us his passion, his power, and his leadership. And I'll just start at passion. And like this thing, this jumps off of the page. I mean, you see all of those, those verses and why I wanted to read this whole thing is because it goes on and on and on and on talking about these great movements of God on behalf of David. But like, and it's really important, like look at this, look at this context in which, in which it is set. So in verse 6, he says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help from his temple, and he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. But then what did he do? Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations, also the mountains trembled and quaked, because he was angry. The sufferings of David actually upset 
and awoke the passions of God on David's behalf. And I just want to ask, do we tend to see God as passionate towards us? I mean, he's kind of the great, at least to me, it's easy to think of him as the great, even-tempered, unbothered one. But that's not really how he is depicted. That the sufferings that we feel actually prompt some passion in him. And that passion that we see in him actually gives us a very clear view of how God feels and thinks about his children exactly where they are in their situation. And I'll give you an illustration from the annals of the great Lauren's dad, the legend of Bill May. Um, it might be a little bit insensitive to sensitive ears. It has to do with animals. So you can, you can tell me afterwards that this was a bad idea. But I'm going to go for it because it perfectly illustrates this point. Um, Lauren grew up and they had a cat. It was really sweet. Uh, his name was Sweetie, actually. Um, and Lauren's dad, you could not tell anything but indifference towards that cat. If there was any love that was towards that cat, it, did not, it was never expressed. Um, so that, that just sets the stage. Um, this is very newly after we got married. Lauren got a phone call, and Lauren's mom said, I have some really sad news I have to give you. Uh, there were three dogs that came into the yard, and they got a hold of the cat, and the cat didn't make it. At which point, Lauren's dad grabs the phone and says, and I will have you know, I got the gun, I got in the truck, I chased them through multiple people's backyards, and they did not end quickly. (laughs) So what had seemed to be a lack of passion turned out to reveal there was a whole lot of passion and a strong feeling of actual love towards this cat. It came out in the way of inches. And that's why I use this illustration. Because this is what God is saying to us at the same time. The God that you might feel is kind of serene and detached from you is not that way. That his passion for you exactly where you are is very, very great. Your wounds he feels very, very deeply. And then he goes on verse after verse after verse explaining how that passion is worked out um, in actual, in redemption on David's behalf. So that's one thing to notice, the passion of God that he wants us to see is fresh. And, that, and it, what it's telling us is that the, what we feel, the passion that we feel towards him, it might be stale, but that is not indicative of how he feels towards us. How he feels towards us continues and is fresh every day. Second thing, the power the other thing that jumps off the page here in these, in, these verse, in these verses is the great power of God. And it's creating a strong juxtaposition between David, the weak one who is suffering and who is being pursued by enemies, and the absolute awesome, unsuppressible power of God to act on his behalf. And it happens through nature. He's using all of these words to describe God's control of nature. And just one thing that's kind of interesting, when he's depicting these things in verses 4 and 5, mentioning the cords of death, um, the torrents of destruction, these symbols of death, the cords and the waters. So in the ancient Near East, then there were gods who controlled all these things. And it was a very chaotic thing. They were over the waters, they were over death, um, and they presided um, over a very chaotic uh, creation. 
And so in the background of this chaos, that this chaos is one side, what it feels like is that in all of this suffering that we are experiencing, we are experiencing nothing but these evil forces at work. And we might not be approaching it exactly the same way. I mean, we don't have the same system of gods today as they had then. But it is very easy for us to look at the world, even in a naturalistic sense, and see that famous quote from Thomas Hobbes that life is, uh, what is it, miserable, brutish, and short. That life goes on the way that it goes. It doesn't think. It doesn't feel. We are subject to the mercies of the forces that are around us. Um, and it is much bigger than us. This comes out in weather, this comes out in economics, this comes out in powers. Um, it is all chaos. And we are little people trying to survive in the midst of it. But up against that, you catch all this language when it keeps saying that God is the God who lives and God is the only one. This is a very strong pointed statement that... It is not like God is the most powerful God among, amongst all others, but th- there is only one. There is only one power. And this power has his fingers controlling absolutely every aspect of creation. He is the creator God who brought all things forth, who created everything with no competition. He wanted it and there was. And there is a sense in which even when we go about our lives and, like, and what we feel from life is that it is chaotic and it is difficult. But behind that is the God who not only brought everything into existence, but stands behind every action that happens in creation, in heaven, and on earth. He is the sovereign God who holds all things together and nothing happens that does not happen outside of his control. And just because we can trace and we can see cause and effect about how things come about, how the world works, how life it works, it doesn't mean that there is not a God behind it who is an absolute power. And what it does mean is that when we notice the forces of the world around us, we are actually reminded of the power of God. That the freshness of every day, even our weather, reminds us that there is a power that is there. There is a personal power who stands behind all those things. And he exercises that on behalf of his covenant people. That's the power. Thirdly, which is very important, is the leadership of God. And again, the other thing that we just noticed, if when we read through this that probably was shocking, was that David uh, has the audacity to claim that God owes him redemption because of his righteousness. And what that cannot mean is that David had never sinned. Because remember, where this is set up in the story, this is 2 Samuel 22. This is after what happened in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, where David epically, in TV show proportions, gets himself embroiled in adultery and conspiracy and murder. And yet, somehow this guy can claim that he has some kind of a standing before God in righteousness, that it is only consistent with God that he would actually redeem him and protect him. And how does that work? And we've got to remember the bigger story of what's going on here. And it gives us a clue in here as he is, he is um, describing his rights here, and it says that he did not wickedly depart from the Lord. David is a part of a covenant relationship with God. He is chosen by him. He is part of a particular people that God has redeemed and bestowed much grace. 
And it is through this covenant commitment that he has given a means to deal with sin. He has given cleansing and he has been given redemption. He has been given a new way to go. He has been given these laws and these statutes that provide a compass on what is the direction that God wants for his people. And a sinner though David is, David has persisted in his allegiance to this covenant commitment of God. And that is why, according to God's character, he can only behave towards David as if his righteousness has been taken care of. Because God has been faithful to his people. He has been given the means that his people can be in relationship with him. And all the rest of Israel is looking at David as their leader. This is the guy who is the model of what it means to endure within the grace of God. And how much more, now that we are reading this in the context of um, knowing how God has given us this righteousness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that while his covenant commitment is still there, it has been so fully fulfilled that the one we look to as our leader is the one who can claim it is not just you know, God's benevolent faithfulness, but Jesus has actually led in a way that is blameless. There is no blame that can be attached to Jesus. And this is our leader. This is the one that we have been given. God has maintained his faithfulness to his people through his leader in a way that his people, daily, sinful though we are, we can go before the Lord in absolute confidence that he will not go back on his promises. Righteousness has been taken care of. Sin has been forgiven. His people are welcome to go before him. And whereas this psalm looks back to a leader in David, a David that lived at one time, Jesus is with us every single day. He is the leader who never, now standing before the, bottom, before the Father will never end. He is with us freshly every day. There's more in this psalm, but those are three things I think that we see of where God is, is in a very vivid fashion is showing us aspects about himself. And regardless of how we feel about him, he is offering them to us almost so that we can taste them. We can chew on them and we can go back again and again and again that his grace is new and it is fresh for us every single day. Let's go to the second point. And I've got four things. Because like we said, what it's doing is showing us something about God, but this is also, because of that, it is forming us around um, a way that God wants us to live. Um, and I've got four practical things here that I want to put us for us to consider. Um, the first of which, join the choir. Now obviously we don't have a choir. <laughs> and this is not a, this is not a recruiting pitch um, that actually doing something in particular is what God is calling us to do here. But again, remember, we've got to remember what this psalm is. This psalm was not a momentary thing that David gave to mark one event for one time, but this has been actually rewritten and repurposed for his people to sing together corporately all the time. That's what all of these psalms are. That part of the way that we actually engage with the freshness of God's grace is when we gather together. And this is all kinds of ways. Uh, this is in here. This is in small groups when we are out. This is in one-on-one. -on -one. 
but that when we gather together and rehearse these stories um, of what God has done, we actually experience the grace of God freshly in each other. We get a tangible sense in front of us of other people whom God has done the same thing for. We get to hear the words coming out of other people's mouth. So we're not just preaching to ourselves. We are preaching to ourselves, but we're also hearing it from other people. That one of the ways this is fresh is that when we actually gather together and we mutually remind each other of this um, and we engage with this story uh, together. And I can tell you, and I'm, this is not a uh, come to church or the devil will get you kind of sermon. This is, a, this, is, this is illustrating this principle that is given to us out of love about how when we are dry, that we have been given means of grace where we can get refreshment. I can tell you, even as a pastor, how many Sundays I have not wanted to come into this room because I was tired and burned out and didn't want to see people. And then afterwards, with the singing with the words, with the scripture, there is a sense of the grace of God being rejuvenated and made new. And maybe that's just experiential, but I bet you can come up with some other time with other people uh, where that has also happened. So I want to, that's the first thing. I think that this psalm is actually, in just the very nature of how it was written, this is encouraging us um, to gather together around these things. Second of all, um, turn to God for comfort. And this is another thing that sounds simple, but I can tell you this is one of the hardest things that there is for us to do. And this is also going to be one of those points where I'm going to have to ask you to do as I say and not as I do. Because if there is one thing that we are very good at as people, it is comforting ourselves. It is almost a reflex reaction. Um, we, I can talk, look at my own life and talk about what I eat, what I drink, what I watch, how I spend my time. Um, the things that I yearn for and get grumpy about whenever I don't get. Um, even a judgmentalism that likes to put other people in their place and according to a category so I feel better about myself. Our lives, when life is hard, then we will find ways to comfort ourselves. And what God wants us to see here Look at how when David experienced this, it says to us very clearly, when he was in his, his distress, he called upon the Lord, and he looked to the Lord to be his help. And the reason why he is calling us to do this is because God is there, passionate to help you. And if even the grace of God can become stale and we can become indifferent to it over time, our idols, the things that we pursue to try to comfort, do much, much worse over time. But God is there. God is a real God who has provided abundant redemption. He is there for you, and he is calling out to you to turn your focus and desire for comfort upon him and nothing else. That's the second thing. The third thing is to use his grace liberally. And again, what I don't mean is, like when Paul gets into in, in Romans 6 and 7 about that we should just go about our lives, do whatever we want, and not care about what we do, and yet, and then expect the grace of God to cover it. God's grace is inexhaustible, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is the kind of confidence that David is displaying and leading us into in our relationship with God. He is calling on us to depend on it. 
to enter before God in relationship, in prayer, with a sense of comfort and expectation that God is actually there for us and His grace, no matter what, cannot taint that our, His grace is fully enough to cover anything that we might taint that relationship with. And I'll just give you a little illustration. My kids are uh, really into life, according to Jeff Goldblum. Uh, y'all, y'all watch the show? Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but they have been um, giving me recaps uh, almost every day of it, which is great. Uh, Jeff Goldblum goes about just different hobbies and interests that people has, and he does a deep dive and explains them. Uh, one of them was about sneakerheads, you know, the people who collect sneakers. Um, and there are so many just rare, priceless sneakers that are there, and they're not used for anything except putting up on a shelf. So that they, because they are so rare and precious, they cannot be worn, they cannot be scuffed, they cannot be tainted. That is not how God's grace is given to us. God's grace is meant for us to walk in, to get dirty in, to play in, to go running in, to go through all of life, knowing that it cannot be worn out. It is there for us to depend on and to use. Last point, and I'm going to close with this. All of this has been good and very personally encouraging to us. But if we miss the last couple verses, there is something fundamental that we've misunderstood about what this psalm um, is trying to do in us uh, to shape us. What does it say? He's saying, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. What has God's purpose been in life from the very beginning of creation until the very end? That all creation, all nations would know and experience the great grace of God. And there is a sense in which that grace is meant to be used by us to go about in freedom, that there is a direction that it is angling us to in which to use it. And that is for the sake of of other people, that they might know the grace of God as well. That there is not one corner of creation that does not sing of the great grace and mercy that we have been given. There is a missional identity that we have been given as a church as we bask in grace that sends us back out for the sake of others, that we might share what we have. And Paul picks up on this in Romans 15. That's why we read this this passage. Um, That this is one of his proofs that Even though God had chosen a particular people, his end was always all people. One people for the sake of sharing it with other people. And what the practical application of that is that we welcome each other, no matter who we are. That Paul is saying that both Jew and Gentile, that you are one together. The grace has been given liberally to all people, no matter who they are, where they come from, what they look like, what they have, all these kinds of things. And that part of using the grace of God, that is experiencing it for ourselves, that when we do that, when we move outward, when we gather together, when we show hospitality, then we actually get little tastes of the end of what God is bringing about. And so this moves us outwards. This asks us creative questions that, that are for our whole body to answer about where is there darkness around us? Where are there people that are lonely around us? Um, It asks us how we spend our time. It asks us how we spend our resources, these kinds of things. 
as that it is for us and for us alone? Or is it for something that is much bigger? And I tell you that one of the things I think where we get sidetracked most and where the grace of God starts to become stale is when our eyes start to turn inward, only on ourselves and only on our own problems and only on our own issues. And we forget the vastness of what God is here to do. And when we do that, when we take notice of the vastness of what God is here to do and we see ourselves as part of that, then his grace does nothing but get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that is good news. So I pray for us, you know, in this psalm, that God, that we would, that he would really send his spirit in us today, that we would taste that kind of a, a freshness of what he's been given. We would see him as new today, but that he would equip us through that, that he would send us out into our community groups and into our week, and that we would look to look at the world with his eyes and that his grace might be known outside of our midst. So let me pray that for us. Dear Father, would you just do just that? Would you give us a new and fresh taste of your grace? Bind up the brokenhearted. Uh, would you awaken the bored? Uh, would we all taste and drink deeply of that which truly satisfied? And would you, would you send us out into your community and will we see light and will we, we see hope? And would you give us the creativity and the direction needed to do that? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.